My mom would tell you that as well. It, it's a strange thing to think of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one whom we worship, the one who is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us, the, the, the one who we're going to celebrate in communion later, that that person has a mother. And there's a term, an old Greek term that you can use at cocktail parties if you go to cocktail parties to impress people, um, especially if it's a Protestant uh, party. <laughs> If it's a Catholic party or an Orthodox party, they're not going to be that impressed. Or they'll go, like, how did you learn that term? But the term that people have used for generations and millennia for Mary is Theotokos, which is mother of God. And that might make us feel a little uncomfortable to call Mary that, but that's actually true. She is the mother of God in in the sense that Jesus is God. There are other names for Mary that that I think we don't use and shouldn't use, Queen of Heaven and things like that. I'm not comfortable using because I don't think that's biblical in any way, but, but there, are, there is this sense, there's something about Mary that really draws me in anyways, and I know Protestants get nervous talking about Mary because we're worried that she's going to jump out from behind a bush and hit us with a rosary and trick us to, into being Catholic, right? Like, that's the concern that we have, that there's this, this focus on Mary that, that maybe is a little unhealthy, but, but I think the, what, what we do then with that is we start to ignore her. And, and I, I love your, uh, what's your mission statement again? To make people who are what? Anybody remember? Fully devoted, right? Can you think, can you think of a disciple in the story uh, of the Gospels who you could advance as more fully devoted to Jesus than his mother? Can you think of anybody? I mean, I want to talk about Mary as really the model disciple. You know, cut away a lot of the, any of the mystical stuff for, for now and just say she is a model disciple. She's really astounding. And I want to read this bit that Protestants will allow, will allow Mary to have this place in the story of the nativity. We'll kind of, we'll be okay with that. You know, we'll do this, the, the play and, and the cutest kid in the whole Sunday school gets to wear the blue and be Mary. And, you know, it's all very sentimental. I want to read out this passage from Luke 1. And I want us to kind of grasp how revolutionary this is. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And no kidding. If the angel Gabriel appeared to you and said, Greetings, O favored one, you'd be troubled. You just would. I mean, that's the constant reaction to any angelic announcement in Scripture is they were terrified and the angels had to say, Be not afraid. Mary is a young girl in a backwater place called Nazareth that nobody would have ever known the name of had it not been for this story. She was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Whoa. That's an announcement. I mean, we have those little... Um, those little sticks now, we're, we're more accustomed to kind of them telling us if we have COVID or not. But before the, the plus and the minus thing, that was like the announcement, wasn't it? Like it's not quite the angel Gabriel, but it still feels very momentous when a baby's on the way. It's like, whoa, it's coming. Can you imagine if the, you didn't have that stick? Instead, you had an angel coming and saying, and this is what your son's going to be. <laughs> like that's, that's crazy. This is what Mary's experiencing. Teenage girl in Nazareth. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Let's just hang out in that for a second. Nothing will be impossible with God. Sometimes people say, oh, you know that story, the, the, the virgin birth story, it's so ridiculous. People just believed anything back then. No, they didn't. They knew this was impossible. They knew how babies were made. Like, they were aware of this. They were a more agricultural kind of people. They saw what sheep got up to. They knew how babies came about. That's why they wrote this down. That's why they call it a miracle. They weren't just credulous. They understood this is a big deal. They knew that this was unlikely. Mary says, how could this be? And God says, what, uh, don't say that anything is impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That is staggering. I, just, I had this thought this week as I was thinking about this passage that, that Mary, in this moment, is enveloped by God. It says that the Spirit comes and overshadows her. That just envelops Mary. That's an incredible thing. There's this invitation, and that's true of all of us, that, that God makes this invitation to all of us and, and says, I will envelop you. I will overshadow you. I, I am bigger than you. Sometimes we say we want to invite Jesus into our heart, but, but actually the first thing is that God is inviting us into his life. And that's what is happening, that the Holy Spirit envelops Mary. But the next thing that happens is that Mary envelops God. Think about that that she is surrounded, fully surrounded by the Spirit of God, and then she surrounds with her body God incarnate. That is staggering. That's incredible. Mary is the first person to accept Jesus Christ into her life in a very, very real way. And there's this beautiful theology in, uh, in the Orthodox Church that says that in this moment when Mary says, yes, let it be unto me as you have said, I am a servant of the Lord, they say that that is the moment that the church was born. Because that is the moment where, where God incarnate is welcomed in to a place on earth. 
God enfleshed, is welcomed in to the womb of Mary. And it's amazing. It's an astonishing thing that she does and says. And Mary's words here in this passage are an incredible display of trust and hope and vulnerability before God. Trust, hope, and vulnerability. She is making herself available to God in the most radical and practical imaginable way. There is no greater level of let it be unto me than you can possibly imagine than Mary saying, okay, do that thing. This is her entire posture towards God. She is available to house God, to host God, to welcome God. She's saying, yes, that's her whole posture. Yes, yes, you may, of course, please create in me what you will, create through me what you will. Is that our posture before God? To say yes unequivocally? To say yes, I don't even know what that, I don't even understand how that's going to work. As far as I get this, that's impossible. That does not work. That's not how things happen. But okay, do that. Do that in me. Change me totally. And think about how Mary was changed. Right? You know, we, 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 spirit, we hear this story so much. We're just like, oh yeah, so she said yes, you know. And then off she went, you know, and she did the thing. And oh yeah, it was maybe a bit of a trouble in her hometown. And, and Joseph came and protected her, you know. She was changed totally. Like when you said yes to Jesus, or maybe this morning when you said yes to Jesus, did you say, and feel free to completely change my body? Like, did you say that? Because that's what Mary said. And again, Mary was, she would have seen how that worked. She had never experienced it. She didn't know what she was fully in for in terms of her own experience of it, but she'd seen what it was going to cost. She said, yes, and that's going to change everything about me. This is deep hope and trust. And I think any, any mother here today would say that's, that's beautiful. That's very beautiful, that level of trust. But any mother here today would also say that the reality of bearing and raising children is slightly messier than that. Can I get an amen <laughs> on that? Carrying and bearing and birthing and raising children is not romantic. It's not clean. I have been present at the birth of five children and one horse. And and it's full on. I mean, it, there's nothing like, there's no la 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 playing. Like, it's just crazy. It's like Braveheart in there. Like, it's, there is, there is yelling and there's cursing and there's blood and there's sharp instruments and there's Scottish people. And it's like full on, like everything's happening. And especially the first birth, like, I don't know. I, my, we, my wife first gave birth when we were in England and we didn't know really the system. And it was just like, what is happening? It was a very complicated birth and we were scared and then this baby comes into the world. And then you're just like, okay, now what do we do? They give you lessons on how to give birth, right? And that's, that's always fun as, as the husband, as the father, you know. Here's what you should do. And I realized, like I was fully aware during this whole process that... Um, my role in this wasn't as big a deal as hers. Like when I said, oh yeah, we're giving birth, that was not totally true. She was doing the bulk of the work. 
I was kind of being there as a calming sort of presence. They give you lessons on how to give birth, but they don't necessarily give you lessons on what to do the next week. They give you a baby. And they say, now go home. I'm like, I'm, I'm 23. I don't know what I'm doing. What do I do? You go home and then you got a baby. And it's on record. Like there's a system, like it's, there's government knows that you have a baby. And you have to take care of that baby. And then you, and you're like, okay, I got to just get through this week. But then you're like, I'm going to have this baby for like a long time. And I'm not sleeping and I'm not thinking very well here. The cost of parenthood, but especially the cost of motherhood, is really, really high. The cost is for life. For Mary, it's not just the pain and the scandal of her birth. And let's remember that this was not an easy pregnancy. This was not an easy social situation or family situation. When she gets sent off to go and visit her cousin Elizabeth, you know, we just think, oh, it's so that she has that moment with, with her baby and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. Um, for many, many generations, and still probably today, uh, people who get pregnant out of wedlock sometimes get sent to the country, you know, to get away from the scandal of their life in their town. This is a scandal, and Joseph knows it. They, she goes away, and the, but the cost is for life. It's not just about the scandal and the pain of the birth. Mary never stopped being the mother of Jesus. She never, ever stopped being the mother of Jesus. You know that story when she goes, uh, she and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And there's a guy there, Simeon, and he prophesies over them. And that this, so this child is going to be uh, the cause of the rising and the fall of many in Israel. And he looks at Mary and he says, and a sword will pierce your soul as well. And we just kind of skip past that, right? But a sword is going to pierce her soul because Mary was intimately involved with the blood and the pain of Jesus' birth. But she was also intimately involved in the blood and the pain of his death. I don't know if you've seen the, the movie, the, the Passion of the Christ. I, I didn't want to see it because um, I actually didn't want to watch two hours of Jesus being tortured. I, didn't, I wasn't really, I didn't want to do that, but I had some, some non-churched teens that I was working with, and they wanted to see the movie, and they said, we need to see it with someone who understands what's going on so you can explain it, and I'm like, all right. So I went and saw it, sort of against my better judgment, and, and there's this moment in the movie where they do a flashback, and Mary is chasing after Jesus, He's running, and he falls, and he skins his knee, and he's bleeding. And she, she yells his name, Yeshua, you know, the Jewish for Joshua, which we've translated into Jesus. And she picks him up, and she cares for him. And then it flashes forward to when she's following him, and he's carrying the cross, and he falls down, and she yells out Yeshua, but she cannot go and comfort him. Can you imagine the desperate pain of a mother who is watching something happen to her son who is fully devoted to him and cannot go and comfort him. And at the time, my, my firstborn child who was born in England is named Joshua. And I just broke down and my, my, the teens were looking at me like, what's, going, what's wrong with you? you know, but I'm like, I can't. Just this, I, I suddenly got this relationship between Mary, the mother of Jesus, that in her 
let it be unto me, to God. This was not just theoretical. It was not just spiritual. This was intensely practical. A sword was piercing her soul. And the church is born out of this, let it be. Let it be unto me according to what you have said. And this, I suggest, should be our posture. Should be our posture, church. This openness, this vulnerability, this trust and hope before God that we say, let it be unto us. Birth something in us and through us into the world. We are open. We are ready. Do what you will with us, even if it's painful, even if it's scandalous, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's messy, even if we know the job isn't over in nine months, it's for life. Do that in me. Change me. Change us, body, soul, and spirit. Feel free. We are available wholly to you. I'll interrupt this with a, a, a tiny little commercial here. Uh, it, on May 27th, on Friday night, May 27th, downtown Vancouver, we're hosting a big prayer gathering with 24-7 Prayer. Um, my friend Danielle Strickland's coming and speaking. We're going to pray a lot. And the theme is going to be how we engage with God and open ourselves up in prayer, body, soul, and spirit. Because we've recognized, particularly over these last two years, that there's this crazy danger of compartmentalizing of saying, this is my social life, my emotional life, my physical life, and my spiritual life, and somehow they're not intimately connected. And we've seen pastors just breaking down, just falling apart because they have not trusted God and they've not been al allowing God and their congregation maybe hasn't been allowing God to care for them physically and emotionally. But the same is true of all of us. We are full people and our whole selves are to be fully devoted to God. And it's actually in that place that freedom and liberation and hope happen. So I want to invite everybody. There's some pamphlets at the back. I want to invite everybody, this whole church, I'd love for you to come. Just to come in and pray with us. We're going to spend a lot of time praying, body, soul, and spirit. Saying, yes, do, behold, we are your servants. Let it be unto us according to what you have said. Body, soul, and spirit. This guy, Oscar Romero. He was the Archbishop, Catholic Archbishop of El Salvador, and he, um, he was an interesting guy. He said when he took on the position, he said, I live in a world of books. He was a very theoretical, spiritual person, very intellectual. And what was happening at the time in that country is the government, backed by our government and the American government, um, were trying to put down certain farmers' um, movements. And it was a horrible oppression and repression. And they were kidnapping people, and they were torturing them to death, and they were dumping them in the garbage heap. That's what was happening at the time in the 70s and 80s. And the church at the time, the Catholic church was kind of the big church there, um, were really, if not complicit, they were intentionally shutting their eyes and being supportive of the government. And Oscar Romero took this position, and he was given that position in part because they thought he's not a problem. He loves his books, he loves the ritual, he'll do the thing, and he'll die, and he won't cause any problems. And at one point, here's what happened. He had some friends who were involved in this movement and knew the people who were getting disappeared, knew the farmers, knew the peasants, and they kept saying, you've got to open your eyes to this. You've got to care about this. 
And he said, that's not for the church to take to think about. That's not for the church to worry about. We worry about the ritual. We worry. We make sure that the, the, the Eucharist happens. We preach and, and we do that, but we don't get involved in these things. You know, we still say stuff, stuff like that today. And so at one point, Archbishop Romero was kidnapped. Not to hurt him. Well, not to hurt him in a bad way. He was kidnapped and he was taken to a garbage heap. And he was shown the bodies of some of his parishioners who had been kidnapped and tortured to death. And it broke him. And he came back and he realized that this faith thing, this archbishop realized that this faith thing was not just a spiritual or intellectual matter. That if he was to truly say, I am your servant, Lord, let it be unto me according to what you have said, he had to care body, soul, and spirit for what God wanted. And he had to care about the body, souls, and spirits of all the people around him. And he changed. And his messages became very different. And he became a serious critic of the horrible violence that was happening in his country. And it caused a huge problem. It caused massive scandal. He said yes to God, and something was birthed in and through him that ended, well, it didn't end, but it ended for him with his martyrdom, that he was assassinated after he gave a homily to a group. And he had predicted it, much like Martin Luther King Jr. had predicted it. He said, I know that I'm not going to die of old age in my bed. Because I understand that saying yes to the Lord causes me to engage in the blood and the mud and the mess of this world in a very, very practical way. And he said that Christ, Romero said, Christ is in the womb of his people. And that our responsibility, church, is to incarnate Christ fully into this world. What does incarnate mean? Anybody have chili con carne ever? What does it mean? Chili with meat. Incarne. Incarnate. To put the meat on. We are to put the meat, the flesh on. That's what Jesus says. He is God with flesh on. And if we are to incarnate, to continue to incarnate Christ in the world, it means we are putting the flesh on, the meat on. How do we do this? How do we, church, do this? Not theoretically, not the whole church in the world, this church here. How do we do this? How do we say, yes, let it be unto me as Mary did? How do we follow Mary's model of discipleship? What does that look like? I believe that, that, that this must encompass our posture, especially towards the most vulnerable in the world. Do you know that the word, uh, the Hebrew word for womb is rachem? And the, the word for compassion is related to this word, rachem. That when it says God has compassion on his people in the Old Testament, it actually is the, the word picture that everybody would have been hearing is God holds his people in his womb. That's weird. That's really weird. I get it. But think about that. The word compassion actually means compassion, to suffer. Passion means suffer, to suffer alongside. You know, carrying a baby in the womb, and I can't speak from personal experience. Again, I've just seen it with, you know, live births with horses and whatnot, but I've just, like, there's a suffering that's happening. 
And it's a suffering in order to produce something beautiful. But there is a suffering. Church, we are called to suffer alongside, to have compassion, rahem, to hold in our womb, church, the most vulnerable in our world. And our commitment to them, to these who are suffering, like Mary, is not just a moment. It's not just a thing that happens. Mary didn't just say, yes, let it happen to me, and boom, the next day it happened. It was yes, then nine months, then 33 years. It's a lifelong commitment, like Mary's was to Jesus, like Mary's was standing in front of the cross. You know, we just went through Easter, and we know that the disciples when Jesus was being arrested, melted into the darkness. That's actually the word. It said they melted away. It's like that. I don't know if any, probably most of you wouldn't have seen it, but there's this, this gif online. It's Homer Simpson just kind of walking into the bush, just hiding, just getting away from. That's what they were like. They were just like, they disappeared. But you know who was at the foot of the cross? Mary was there. Mary was saying, I, I said yes to you, God and my son Jesus. And that meant I said yes all the way here. And actually beyond, she was one of the people who took his body down and was going to go in the, on the third day and take care of his broken body, which has been the job of women and mothers in every generation, in every culture forever. They take care of the baby, and they take care of the broken, dead bodies. Mary said yes to that. Can we say yes to that? Is that what we've said yes to? This is not a theoretical yes. It's not a spiritual yes that's somehow divorced from body, soul, and emotion and sociality. This is what it means to translate the word of God into flesh and blood. And folks, when we do this, when we actually live like this, it is a declaration of defiant hope in the world. To commit to people, to commit to the vulnerable is a defiant hope because the vulnerable are vulnerable for a reason. The world is set up in a way that is not fair to them. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, he said, just the very act of bringing a baby into the world is an act of defiant hope that you look at the world and says, this is broken in so many ways. There is war and poverty and injustice and there, is, there are nuclear weapons that could wipe us all out in a, in a, in a moment. And I'm bringing a baby into the world. That is an act of defiant hope. Church, the same is true when we decide to commit, when we say yes to the Lord and say, I will commit to the most broken and vulnerable in this world. That is an act of defiant hope. And it is costly. The cost is high. Why would we do it? Why would we ever do that? Because Jesus has done that for us. And the cost was high. Because God has looked at us and said, yes, I will care for you like a mother. Think of what Jesus says when he looks at Jerusalem. Do you know this story? When he looks at Jerusalem, he says, oh, he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, oh, that I could gather you in like a mother hen gathers in its chicks. Oh, if I could do that, I would do it. I would do it. There is a motherly love that God has for us that is fully devoted to us. Why should we say yes to Jesus in this costly, costly way? Because he has said yes to us. I think of my friend Sandra, who was in Russia for many years, 
and she was serving in some refugee camps during the Russian Chechnyan War. Um, and if you don't remember that, that was a, another horrible scenario where um, the war was happening and, and Chechnyan children and, uh, were, were being just orphaned. And there was these whole camps that were filled with these orphaned children. And, and most of uh, the people in Chechnya were Muslim. My friend Sandra was a Christian missionary, and she was going and ministering and just caring for people in this camp. And she had a bodyguard with her, a huge man, huge Muslim man who was a bodyguard for her. And he didn't understand this white woman who had come from Canada and was ministering in this refugee camp with people. She, didn't, she was learning their language, but she didn't really speak it, and she didn't share their particular faith. And, and he just at one point, he said, why are you here? Her bodyguard. That's a worrying thing for the bodyguard to say. Like, why are you here? This is really dangerous. When your bodyguard's telling you that, it's dangerous. Why are you here, he said. She said, because I, I'm compelled. I'm compelled by my God to love the most vulnerable, to love the orphan in this world, to care for them when no one else will. And he said, do you have children? And she said, yes, I have, I have four children back in, in another place in Russia. And he goes, well, who's, why, why aren't you there caring for them? And this is a challenging word, church. But she said this to him, and, and she believes it. She said, why are my children more precious than yours? That sounds like a not very motherly thing to say. But that is a very godly thing to say. Her children were protected. Her children were safe. But she said, here are some people. Here are some children without mothers. And God has mothered me. And because God has done that, and I know the cost was everything. For me to say yes to God, to, to say yes to what you want to birth in me and what you want to birth through me compels me to these difficult places. I think that's what mothering really looks like. And I think that the church was born from Mary's let it be. And I just want to know, I, I want to challenge you this week to consider that. And to think who God may be calling you to. Personally. What, who, where is the vulnerable in your midst that God is calling you to? And corporately, as a church, who is God calling you to? I think this is what mission and justice looks like, is that we hear from God, we are connected with God, and then God says, I want you to go and see your neighbor and stand with them and feel, have compassion, suffer with them, and add your voice to theirs. Who is your neighbor? Who is God calling you to love in this way? And it's not the love of a moment, but the love of a lifetime. And I'll end with this really weird story, and then we'll do communion together. It's another Mary story. And this is one of the stories that actually doesn't get talked about much, like within churches that honor Mary extravagantly because it's one that doesn't always make her look all that great. This is from Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Jesus is ministering in a place and uh, it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother 
and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. Now, in that culture, in a Middle Eastern culture, first century Palestinian Jewish culture, if your mother was outside, that was, that was a summons. It still is in some families today. <laughs> if your mom says, get over here, you don't go, well, just hold on a second, mom, I'm doing something. Get over here now, right? But, and he's an adult, but still, your responsibility to your mother was significant. His mother was outside asking to speak with him, but he replied, Jesus replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, if we do the will of our Father in heaven, that's who we are. <clears throat> that is the call of discipleship. That is the thing that Mary said yes to. Not perfectly, but she said yes to. That is the thing that we are called to say yes to. We won't do it perfectly, but that is the call. When we, and we're about to, when 